Uh, and with that, we will transition into our time this morning as we continue our worship from the Gospel of John. And so we'll be in gospel, the Gospel of John this morning, John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21, although I'm not going to get that far this morning. So we're going to do 16 through 18, and actually this is going to be three parts. Uh, so next week you're going to see a part three here with this, uh, this message here when we're seeking answers. What does it look like to seek answers to life's biggest questions from Jesus? Well, each of us longs to have the answers to, to such questions. Why am I here? And what am I going to do about it? What happens when death draws near? These are life's biggest questions. What happens the moment after I take my last breath? Well, two weeks ago, we learned what it looks like to encounter Jesus when we're seeking answers to life's biggest questions. What we discovered was that Jesus doesn't waste time surmising or speculating. In fact, oftentimes, in the case of Nicodemus, Jesus doesn't even really consider our questions. He just tells us what He knows we need to hear. We discovered this through a man named Nicodemus. He came to Jesus seeking answers. This, came, this man came to Jesus, and He said to him, this is in John chapter 3, verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do, that you do unless God is with him. Although this isn't a question, a question is, of course, implied. What Nicodemus wants to know is this, who are you? Who are you, Jesus? Are you, in fact, the promised Messiah? Are you the prophet of God who will come and restore the kingdom of Israel? For Nicodemus, this was life's biggest question. As a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, there was no more important issue in his day than to identify who was the Messiah. The word Messiah, we know, means anointed, the anointed one. It's a, it's a special title applied to that prophet king, Jesus. And when we say Jesus Christ, what we're really saying is Jesus Messiah, because that word Christ, Christos in the Greek, is the Greek word for anointed one or Messiah. So we know Jesus as Messiah because we, we proclaim Him as Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah. Of course, we know that. The New Testament affirms that. But Nicodemus is just learning this. For Nicodemus, Messiah would have been a king. He would have been a, a royal son of David. He would have brought victory and prosperity to the Jewish nation. Recall this was the perspective of the multitude who hailed Jesus during His triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You remember that. He was sitting on a donkey, and He came into Jerusalem, and they had palm branches, and they cried out, Hosanna, which means, save now. Of course, we cry out, Hosanna today, save now. They meant something different there. In that day, what they really wanted was Again, victory and prosperity for the Jewish nation. That's what they expected. They also, we also see this belief even a little bit later in John chapter 6 when Jesus is doing the miracle where He uh, feeds the 5,000. In John chapter 6, verse 14, it says, When the people saw the sign that He had done, that is feeding the 5,000, 5, they said, This is indeed the prophet 
who is to come into the world. What did they do when they identified him as the Messiah? It says, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, it's easy for us to be hard on Nicodemus and the Jews of Jesus' day. However, their perspective is not entirely unfounded. They're not crazy to believe this. The Bible does speak of Messiah as a king, and it does promise that the Messiah will return to set up a kingdom. Of course, there's a lot of places in the Old Testament we might see this and argue for this, but Amos 9 is, is a, good, a good verse, and Amos 9.11 is a good place to see this. It says this, in that day, this is a future day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. This is what Nicodemus has in his mind. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to raise up that fallen booth of David. He's going to restore that Davidic kingdom, the nation of Israel going to repair its breaches, raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old. This is what the people expected with King Messiah. Of course, Jesus knows that Nicodemus is thinking this. And so, if it's a king he wants, well, a king he'll get. So, Jesus responds to Nicodemus in John 3, 3. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here's the king. And he even unpacks it a little further in chapter 3, verse 5. And he says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I believe it's right for us to see these words from Jesus as a kind of reformation of thinking, at least in the mind of Nicodemus. There's something here that King Jesus is saying that's, that's new to Nicodemus, a new way of thinking about the kingdom. The problem is, I guess for Nicodemus, that he's forced to follow Jesus' logic. He's forced to follow because he says in chapter 3, verse 2, no one does these signs that you do unless God is with him. It's as if Nicodemus has already laid his cards down. Well, he's already acknowledged that I, I have to believe what you say, Jesus, because nobody could do these things unless God is with him. Furthermore, and interestingly, Jesus holds Nicodemus accountable for not understanding when he admonishes him later in chapter 3, verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? What was it that Nicodemus was missing? And what was it that Jesus wanted him to understand? Well, without denying the promise of a future kingdom, a future physical kingdom, Jesus doesn't deny that promise. He does stress the spiritual elements of the kingdom. And although this new covenant reality apparently is something Nicodemus should have seen in the Scriptures, it's something he should have also connected with the coming of the Messiah. He misses that. But the Old Testament says it. And I quoted this two, two, weeks, uh, two weeks ago. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, demonstrate this. Again, Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Here he's speaking of the nation of Israel. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart 
and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's the Old Testament. In John 3, 5, we find that entrance in the kingdom is obtained with three things. New birth, and that's produced through water and the spirit. New birth, water, and the spirit, three things. Well, in Ezekiel's prophecy, we find the same three things. The language is a little different, but they're, they're all there. Instead of a new birth, we, we read about a new heart. There's a new heart, and that's produced through clean water and God's Spirit. Again, they're parallel. If Nicodemus had spent time in such a passage, he would have learned that physical descent from Abraham was not enough. Remember, John the Baptist says in Matthew chapter 3, he rebukes the Jews and says that God could raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. Access into the kingdom of God has neither to do with ethics or ethnicity. Access into the kingdom of God has everything to do with reconstruction and renewal from the inside. To swear allegiance to Messiah, to King Jesus, is to let both our ethics and our ethnicity fall to the ground. Even stronger, although John doesn't use this word, I don't think ever in his book, it's to repent of those things. It's very possible for us to approach Jesus as Nicodemus did. We desire to have our questions answered, and yet our fingers are clenched around something. In the case of Nicodemus, I believe it might have been, well, his Judaism. His hands may have been gripped to a strict adherence to the law, again, his ethics, and a connection to Abraham, his ethnicity. What are your hands gripping to? If you were to come to Jesus under the cover of night with some probing question for Jesus, how might he respond? What would Jesus put his finger on that would reveal your need for reconstruction and renewal? Now, I realize it's somewhat early in this message for me to pose such an application. However, I believe this passage this morning and our study of this passage demands that we consider such things at the outset. We haven't even stood and read the Word yet. If we're going to hear the words of Jesus this morning, then we must hear them as Nicodemus did. We must recognize that we are bringing something with us. What am I bringing to this relationship? Better yet, what am I hanging on to? We sang it this morning. What's holding me back from saying, all to Jesus I surrender. Humbly at His feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken. Take me, Jesus. Take me now. As I've suggested, for Nicodemus, it was his ethics and his ethnicity. These things stood in the way. Interestingly, it was his religion 
It was his religion that posed a threat. Rather, his understanding of his religion. What Nicodemus needed was a course correction. He needed to understand that the central theme of his he needed to understand, excuse me, the central theme of his religion. It's possible that Nicodemus saw his religion as a badge. It was a badge he acquired through birthright, and it was a badge he kept by rule keeping. What Nicodemus needed to understand, what you and I need to understand, is that the central theme of true religion, the central theme of Christianity, is love. And not the love we have for each other, although that's a very important theme, but the central and most important theme is the love that God has for His people. The love that God had for a rule keeper like Nicodemus, and the love that God has for a rule breaker like me. Nicodemus' religion called for a king who would usher in victory for Israel. Jesus' religion called for a king who would usher in victory for the world. Nicodemus' religion required a king in full regalia. Jesus' religion required a king in humble submission. Here's the point I'm driving at, and I believe it's the point Jesus is trying to help Nicodemus understand, and interestingly, it's found in an illustration. It's verses 14 and 15, John 3, 14 and 15. It says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. From all the possible illusions... All the illustrations, all the shadows, all the types that are found in the, in the Old Testament that Jesus might have drawn from to demonstrate who Messiah is, this is where Jesus goes. This obscure moment in the history of Israel to demonstrate to this man who Messiah is. It was a moment in which Israel suffered a penalty from God for their obstinance. Although Israel suffered greatly while under the thumb of the Egyptians, Numbers 24 says, they spoke against God and against Moses. They cried out, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. We loathe this worthless food. Maybe remember this account. This outcry set in motion a punishment from the Lord, which then caused the Israelites to seek Moses' help. As a sentence, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people that bit them, and some of them died. So Israel cried out again, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Moses was then instructed by Yahweh to make a serpent and set it on a pole. We read in Numbers 24.9, So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Again, all the illusions, all the illustrations, all the types, all the shadows that Jesus could have referred to, to help Nicodemus understand who Messiah is, and this is what he chooses. So here then is the image, the picture that Jesus wants Nicodemus to see. But this time, not a bronze serpent, 
Jesus wants Nicodemus to see the Son of Man sit on a pole. The Messiah, the one who surely Nicodemus knows Daniel 7 says, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That one that all peoples and nations and languages should serve. It was that one that was set on a pole. And why was he set on a pole? Well, verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In the verses that follow, in verses 16 through 21, Jesus is going to unpack, I believe, explain or unpack why the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's going to explain this to a very religious man, Nicodemus. He's going to explain why his Messiah, why his King must be set on a pole. That's the context for John 3.16 and what follows. And Jesus is going to give two reasons why. The first reason we're going to look at this morning, and the second we'll look at next week. And it's this, It is Jesus must be lifted up to display God's greatest love. And number two, which is be next week, to display man's greatest need. And so with that, if you would, please stand and we'll read. I'm actually going to read John chapter 3, verses 1 through 22. And if you'll excuse my sniffling, next time don't offer me a gift before I preach. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit." Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe it if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. God in heaven, we come before you with this ringing in our ears, Lord, this central truth as I have explained it, Lord, that you are a loving God. You love the world, and you've given us an opportunity, Lord, to turn to you and to be saved, to look upon you on a pole. What a tremendous reality, something we've already celebrated this morning even with communion. God, we pray this morning that as we continue our worship in this word, through your word, that you would be moving in our hearts, Lord. Help us to see this love, to understand it in a new way, to, to let go of anything that we're holding on to, and to completely and fully embrace you for all that you are, Lord. Be with us this morning and do these things, not for our sake, but for your sake. And it is in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. As I've said, Jesus gives two reasons why the sun must be lifted up, and the first we will explore for the rest of this message. And so everything that I'm going to say from here on is to argue this one point, and that is that Jesus is lifted up to display the love of God. That's what I'm arguing now from here on through the end. I suspect John 3.16 is the most memorized, most known verse in the Bible. Probably all have it memorized. Rightfully so, as the verse sums up, well, the entire gospel in one sentence. I think Luther said it's the gospel in miniature. For all the complexity we find in the Bible, if, if we were to kind of strip it all down to the most important features, it's fair to say that John 3.16 would stand. In one verse, we find God's love for humanity and man's desperate need of God. It's all there in one verse. The ESV translation, which we've read from this morning, says, For God so loved, where so is that adverb used to emphasize the love. God so loved. And it's right for us to emphasize the love because love is emphasized in the verse. The way that the writer does it is by kind of moving that word to the front of the sentence. And so it is right to say that God so loved. Yet I believe the translation is, is somewhat missing something. And so I would translate it this way, for in this way God loved the world, that He gave His only Son. And I think that helps us draw out what's most important, and that is the degree or the manner in which God loved us. God loved the world in this way to such an astonishing degree that He gave His unique, one-of-a-kind Son. It's no accident Jesus uses the word agape here for love. You probably know something about that word. You've probably heard it before. We commonly describe this kind of love as a love that doesn't seek its own interest. It's something we say about agape love. It's the kind of love that describes an action that seeks the benefit of another. It's the highest form of loving, you might say. It's, it's more than mere affection. It's more than a friendship, although it includes that, but it's more than that. It's, it's a selfless kind of love. 
And it's this selfless love that drove our God to give His one and only Son to the world. Morris writes, The Jew was ready enough to think of God as loving Israel. Nicodemus was ready enough to think that. But no passage appears to be cited in which any Jewish writer maintains that God loved the world. That was a foreign concept to the Jewish mind. It's a distinctively Christian idea that God's love is wide enough to embrace all people. His love is not confined to any national group or spiritual elite. It's a love that proceeds from the fact that He is love. It is His nature to love. He loves people because He is the kind of God He is. As John writes later in John, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. So then, why must the Son of Man be lifted up? Well, to display God's greatest love, as I've mentioned. To show the limitless nature of God's love. A love that embraces all mankind. And here, it's a love that costs Him something grand. God's love is not a mere feeling or emotion, but a love that costs. And there is nothing that stands in the way of His love. You remember that time that God instructed Abraham to give up his one-of-a-kind son? Do you remember that? Genesis 22 Abraham rose early in the morning and he saddled his donkey. He cut the wood for the burnt offering. He saw the offering place far away and he told the young men to stay with him. He said, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. You remember Abraham took the wood and he placed it on Isaac. He carried the fire to ignite the offering and the knife to slay the victim As they approached the place of offering, Isaac inquired, you can hear the words of this young boy, behold the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham replied to his son, God will provide for himself the lamb. Having come to the place, they built the altar, and the the Hebrew text is, is fascinating here. It moves very quickly, and it's very vivid as it describes these next events. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything for him. Importantly, for now I know that you fear God. You have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. What was the highest proof of Abraham's love for God? He would not withhold his only son. Story helps us feel the emotion behind offering up a son. It helps us feel what's behind the words, for God loved for God loved the world in this way that He gave His Son, His one of a kind Son. And it helps us see that there's no greater display of love than that the eternal Father give His one of a kind Son to die for us. This action is the pinnacle of God's glory. We might say it's the crown of all His attributes and achievements. It's the action that makes God supremely attractive to every sinner. 
that God would spare no expense, that He would even offer His very Son for the vilest sinner is a thought too great for us to fathom. Maybe you've heard the story that illustrates the fondness that parents have for their children, how in a famine, a father and a mother were reduced to starvation, and in order to preserve the life of the family, were forced to sell one of their children into slavery. They had four sons, but who would be sold? Of course, it couldn't be the first. How could they spare their firstborn? The secondborn was strangely like his father. He seemed to be his clone. The mother said she could never part with him. The third was so strangely like his mother that the father said he would rather die than his boy be sold into slavery. Well, what of the fourth? Well, he was their Benjamin. He was their baby, their darling. How could they part with him? In the end, they concluded, it'd be better to die together than willingly part with any of their children. You could sympathize with the family. Spurgeon writes, God so loved us that, to put it very strongly, He seemed to love us better than His only Son. Apostle John also wrote these words, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And how does this Son become our propitiation? How does the Son become that which appeases the wrath of God, which is what that fancy word means? We answer with a question. How did Israel stave off the wrath of God in the wilderness? What was it that prevented the fiery serpents from biting them? Numbers 21.9 says, And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look. He would look at the bronze serpent and live. Israel avoided God's punishment by gazing up at the bronze serpent. As the nation focused their attention on this serpent, fashioned to a pole in the wilderness, they found aid. Likewise, for God loved the world in this way that He gave His one and only Son, His unique Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. We find aid the same way that Israel did, by gazing up at the serpent. Except for us, the shadow has been removed and we see the substance. We gaze up at the tree and see God's unique Son, the Son of Man, Messiah, Jesus. Suppose it's a moment in which Nicodemus is forced to lay down anything and everything he might be holding on to. A moment in which Nicodemus must come to grips with all he thought he knew about his religion. Here, he was awaiting a Messiah to rescue his, pe- his people from the clutches of Roman rule and to vindicate them from years of oppression. In approaching Jesus... We assume he brings all his, that is Nicodemus, when he approaches Jesus, we assume he brings all his Judaism to the table. Again, his ethnic ethics and his ethnicity. Well, what kind of Messiah are you awaiting? What have you brought to the table? If you are a Christian, what kind of Jesus do you worship? Furthermore, 
What kind of religion do you practice? Whatever Messiah you are awaiting, whatever Jesus you worship, whatever kind of religion you practice, if it doesn't find at its apex, at its summit, at its highest point, the truths found in John 3.16, then it's not biblical Christianity. If you don't see God as the greatest being, if you don't see His actions in the greatest degree, if you don't see His love as the greatest affection, if you don't see His gift as the greatest act, if you don't see His Son as the greatest treasure, if you don't find in this verse the greatest relationship, if you don't find in this verse the greatest gift, if you don't see the whoever as the greatest company, if you don't see belief in Him as the greatest trust, if you don't see Him as the greatest object of faith, if the words should not perish aren't the greatest deliverance, if you don't see in this verse the greatest assurance, if you don't see here the greatest promise, and if you don't see in this verse the greatest blessing, then friend, you do not have biblical Christianity. If your Christianity doesn't see God chiefly as a loving God, then it isn't biblical Christianity. If your religion doesn't see God's highest mission as the giving of His Son, then you have a false religion. If you believe that God's love has a limit, friend, you need correction. If your theology doesn't accept that we are saved through faith, gazing up at the sun, then you have an errant theology. And Jesus wants us to see at the giving of the Son, He wants us to see the giving of the Son holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy as an act of love, entirely as an act of love. He doesn't want us to see the giving of the Son as an act of justice or judgment, entirely in order that men might escape judgment and be saved. Look at verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. There's a strong point-counterpoint emphasis found in this verse. Not this, but that. It's kind of, in the Greek, it's a, the, kind of the strongest way that you can do that. Never this, but this. Jesus wants us to understand very clearly, God did not send the Son to condemn, to condemn. On the contrary, God sent the Son so that the world might be saved through Him. Not this, but that. This verse provides a kind of clarification. Jesus wants Nicodemus to wrap, rightly wrap his mind around all that is happening. However, there's a challenge here. The challenge is that salvation implies judgment. We're saved from something. People are saved from judgment. We might say there are two sides of the one coin. Jesus came to bring salvation for those who believe, but this implies that if you don't believe, then there's judgment. In the way that sunshine throws a shadow, so salvation throws a shadow of judgment. The solution to this paradox is found in verse 18. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I think the most important word in that verse is the word already. Here's the reason why the giving of Jesus is not in judgment, because man is already judged. He's already condemned. Man is already condemned, therefore the purpose of Christ's coming was not judgment. It couldn't have been judgment. They were already condemned. Therefore the mission of God was one of salvation. God sent His Son to save the world, not to condemn the world. Here Jesus is helping Nicodemus and us understand that the Son of Man came into an already lost and condemned world. Jesus did not come into a neutral world in order to save some and condemn others. He came into a lost world. They were already condemned. And Jesus will have more to say about this in verses 19 through 21, which we'll explore next week. But in verse 18, the world is lost or the world is condemned because it has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus is affirming that unbelief equals self-condemnation. God is not to blame but rather the unbeliever. Jesus wants to strip away any notion that Messiah has come to condemn. The gift of God's Son is to be viewed entirely as an act of love. And it's this love that lies at the root of the new birth. Recall Nicodemus' final question in verse 9. How can these things be? How could this new birth happen? These things can be because of the vast, overflowing, unbounding love of God. It's not simply that God is love, although that's true, but, but it is God so loved that He gave. Frederick Lehman was a, a California businessman who lost everything in a bad business deal. He was forced to manual labor he worked in a Pasadena, Pasadena, Pasadena packing house, packing fruit into wooden crates. Lehman was a, a Christian, and he desired to write a song about the love of God. Over time, he wrote two stand, stanzas, but he struggled to come up with a third in, in his day. You'd have to have three stanzas, or else you didn't have a song. He remembered that he had been given a poem by someone and soon found the poem written on a card, which he had used for a bookmark. Upon reading the words, Lehman was overjoyed as their subject fit his song perfectly. He ended up using them as the final verse, final stanza of his song. But he noticed this writing on the bottom of the card. These words were found written on a cell wall in a prison some 200 years ago. It is not known why the prisoner was incarcerated. Neither is it known if the words were original or if he had heard them somewhere and had decided to put them on the wall of his prison cell. In due time, he died, and the men who had the job of repainting his cell were impressed with the words. Before their paintbrushes had obliterated them, one of the men jotted them down, and thus they were preserved. The poem was this, and he used this as his final stanza. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above, 
would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the, the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Barclay reminds us that this love was not for a nation, not for good people, not only for people who loved him, it was for the world. Barclay says, the unlovable and the unlovely, the lonely who have no one else to love them, the man who loves God and the man who never thinks of God, the man who rests in the love of God and the man who spurns the love of God, all are included in the vast, inclusive love, the love of God. Augustine had it. God loves each one of us as if there was only one of us to love. As I close, I'd like just to return again for a moment to that illustration that Jesus uses from Moses. Something that's great about this illustration is that it tells us what to do and what not to do. I assume there may have been some Israelites who struggled or suggested certain means to avoid the fiery serpents, maybe even some who have concocted an antidote to counteract the poison, or maybe some ritual was suggested. Maybe they made a golden serpent to bow down and worship. I don't know. It wouldn't be out of character. Barnhouse humorously suggested the Israelites incorporated the Society for the Extermination of Fiery Serpents. He imagined they created badges, they issued cards, they elected officials, they staged rallies, they posted photographs of slain serpents, they downplayed the number of deaths. On the other hand, as we've suggested, some may have been offering sacrifices to these serpents. Of course, none of this would have availed. No antidote no society for the extermination of fiery serpents, no offering would suffice. In that moment, the Israelites had to give up their dependence on themselves. They had to concede their cleverness. They had to surrender their self-improvement. They had to stop being religious. They needed to let their ethics and their ethnicity fall to the ground and gaze up at the serpent. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Have you looked on Christ? Have you looked on Christ with nothing in your hand? Close with Isaiah 45, 22. It's a verse that's kind of like that Old Testament version of this. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. Amen.